This is In Tune, the in-series podcast, opening up to you your own in-series, opera and more, an oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. We're recording today on August 22nd, and this is a Look Inside episode, the first edition, and we'll be talking about, among other things, Viva Verdi, The Promised End, the first show of our 2018-2019 revolution season. I'm your host and resident talking head, Timothy Nelson, artistic director no longer designate of the in-series. And first today I wanted to talk about why a podcast. This is something completely new for the in-series. My artist side has a hard time talking about opera uh, because that's what I do and I've always felt that no matter what I can say, the work we do always can and should speak louder than any words we use to talk about it. With that said, uh, we have a problem in opera. We have lots of problems, but a major one is how we as an industrial artistic complex have, since the early 19th century, intentionally mystified what we do um, so that we build a mystique and we make it in a very exclusive act. And it's such a luxury tool for social power. And I'm very open about this, and I think we need to be open about this when talking about our heritage. Um, it's the truth part of the truth and reconciliation that needs to happen to opera in order for it to survive what's, what's coming in the next century. Uh, I want to be clear that uh, just because this rarefied approach to opera is our history and intentionally constructed one, doesn't have anything to do with what opera is at its core and why I love it so much uh, and why I've made it my life's work. Uh, I'd like to say I love not what opera is, but what opera could become. The most powerful tool to communicate the ineffable of the human experience and inspiring change and action in our communities. So step one is to demystify what we do to help people know, relate, connect with the essence of this bizarre thing we call opera. Uh, and opera is a word, I'm sure we'll talk about this in an upcoming episode, is a, is a problematic vernacular. It's a word I, I really struggle with, but there isn't another word yet for, for what it is. Uh, of course, opera is the Italian word for um, a work or a creation, um, and it is the poorest word to describe what I believe to be the most powerful and fullest uh, art form there is. Uh, but this podcast is step one in the process of opening up, being transparent with you, our audience community. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about what the, what the podcast will do, what sort of episodes we'll have. Um, of course, we'll explain particular productions. That's, uh, that's what this episode is, um, and that's why I call it a look inside episode. So we'll be talking about Viva Verdi, the upcoming uh, new production of the in-series that opens September 8th at Source Theatre. More about that in a bit. We'll have interviews with staff, with artists, with community members and collaborators. Um, we'll record our director's salons. We have one coming up next week, and I'll tell you all about that in the episode as well. Um, we're throwing an open window at in-series, and we believe that art, creativity, has an inherent and sacred mystery to it, but that mystery happens on the stage at the performances. Everything about how we make the art, that should be an open dialogue within and without of the organization. Uh, so in this first episode, I have, to, I have to be honest with you, faithful listeners. Um, I am the most technically uninformed, uninitiated, and uninterested person of my generation. I can hardly believe that I'm making a podcast. I tend to avoid social media. I have to force myself to be connected, whatever that means. Um, but I think it's important that we all overcome 
uh, those things which scare us or which we don't know about. And I think it's important that the in-series um, speaks in multitudes of ways to its audience, and that includes online and in digital media. Um, so even though I can't stand the sound of my own voice, here I am and here we go. I've never done anything like this. So the format is probably going to be organic and change over time until we find, a, find you know, exactly what format works. Uh, and even then, it probably should adapt over time. Uh, and I fully expect to sound like a goober a bit or more, uh, but I don't want to, this thing to be totally scripted, um, and I feel it's sort of a crucible for me and the institution. Uh, together, I'm going to talk a bit uh, about the in-series, past, present, future, and also introduce briefly the season, which opens September 8th, as I said, and runs through June of 2019, and quickly get into describing our first production and hopefully piquing your interest in it. Um, so the in-series, we're 38 years old this year. We were founded by my intrepid and wonderful and creative force of nature predecessor, Carla, Carla Hubner. Um, and we were founded as a, as a concert series at Mount Vernon College, um, which is now owned by George Washington University. And for the first 15 years of our existence, we uh, presented concerts, but because of Carla's uh, imagination and her love of all the arts, it began to incorporate dance and poetry and all the, all the things that I love and that I loved doing in the early 2000s, um, she was doing in, in the early 1980s. Um, I want to read the mission of the organization. Uh, the in-series exists to work with and for DC area artists to create innovative theatrical programming around a mostly classical music core of opera, cabaret, and song. In-series productions embrace fresh approaches to the classics and blend the performing arts in unconventional ways. The in-series is committed to excellence, affordability, and access to our shared multifaceted musical heritage as exemplified by our annual Latinx cultural programming. Um, so that, that leads us today, and, and me, I'm the new artistic director. Uh, I was named by the board that uh, in the spring of last year, and I began my tenure this week, the, the middle of August 2018. Um, I'm originally from West Virginia. I grew up in Virginia. Um, I'm a composer, a not very good pianist, and I studied at Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore, uh, where I studied composition, and while there I discovered opera. Uh, and I had my own company, very much like the in-series that was in Baltimore and Washington, called American Opera Theater. Um, and then I moved to Europe about 15 years ago, and I've been working as a freelance director and conductor after studying harpsichord and opera direction at Indiana University. I lived in Amsterdam for 12 years and was artistic director of the National Opera Studio there uh, and of the Young Artist Program of the Rotterdam Opera Dach. And that's a great festival in Rotterdam. It lasts... Um, I think it lasts about 10 days, probably 100 to 200 events over those two weeks of just the most uh, creative and um, inspiring performances of opera in short storefronts, in old bars, in clubs, in churches around the city. It's opera every day, everywhere. It's named one of the top 10 opera festivals in Europe. Um, I couldn't be prouder to have been involved with it. Then in the last three years, I've been working in London, largely, freelancing around the world, and here I am, coming back to America after a long time. I've been searching for the perfect company to bring me back home. I've wanted to be in America again, and uh, the in-series came into my life, and uh, as, as Carla would say, it is the essence of serendipity we found each other. 
Uh, and I, I just want to say briefly sort of my vision for the company. Um, I don't see what I'd like to do at the in-series as um, moving straight forward, just continuing what we do, but I also don't see it as turning away in a new direction. Instead, I see it as a sort of expanding fulfillment of the existing mission. Uh, opera is my home turf, uh, but I'd like to be producing opera which I feel realizes its own potential to move honestly and strongly, connected to social conversations, affecting change and asking important questions about its own future, and in the process blending in poetry, spoken text, deconstructing the canon to build a new canon. Uh, we do a lot of Latinx uh, programming here, um, and I'd like to be expanding that. Uh, Zarzuela is a very powerful and tremendously popular art form around the world, little known here. Um, and what I'd like to be doing is creating a whole new repertoire of Zarzuela, inspiring young poets and composers to dedicate themselves to continuing this art form and using this art form as a way of exploring the issues facing their communities today. And there's also a whole realm of other uh, Latin American uh, programming for us to ex it, for us to explore musics of Cuba, of Mexico, um, wonderful Argentinian operas that have not been performed in the United States. So, so part of my vision for the company is expanding that program and at the same time expanding our dedication to American Songbook. It's wonderful that we do Cole Porter, we do Jerome Corn, we do Irving Berlin, but there are all sorts of other American music and new American musics out there, um, including bluegrass and spirituals and um, uh, traditional music of different ethnic communities. So in the spirit of exploring the multiplicity of this great country live, we live in, our plan is to expand the uh, programming we do under American Songbook and Cabaret, uh, which brings me to this first season. Uh, our 2018-2019 season is called Revolution, and you can't see the, the uh, image for this, but Revolution has a large capitalized and bold in a different color E, so it's at once Revolution and Evolution. And I want to talk about that title a bit. Um, the etymology of Revolution comes from the Latin revolvere, uh, which means to turn. Now we might think, knowing, having a modern sense of what the word revolution means, we might think that that indicates turning in the opposite direction. Uh, but actually it just means to turn around. It could be turning all the way around. I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, evolution, though it rhymes conveniently with revolution, um, doesn't exactly come from the same root word. It comes from evolvere, which means to unfold. Um, and one of my favorite quotes from T.S. Eliot from his Four Quartets, which uh, coincidentally, or not coincidentally, because it's in my head all the time, um, has, has a great line um, and will be the, the starting point for our second work on the season, the, the Figaro and Four Quartets. And that line is to arrive at where we started and to know the place for the first time, uh, which is both revolution, it's turning, it's spiraling, it's coming back home, and evolution, which is unfolding, uh, expanding. Uh, so I feel these two words reflect the fact that we're continuing moving forward in the great heritage of in-series and what in-series has been creating for 38 years. And at the same time, we are expanding and unfolding in that mission. Um, that's how we, I think, express our desire to confront the community with what I like to call radical grace. Um, which is innovation 
that's groundbreaking, even provocative, but it's done with sensitivity, with responsiveness, and with compassion. Uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from the Euripides Alcest, which is grace where grace is needed, which I really think uh, describes exactly what art can do and what the in-series can do in, in our community that's, that's so wounded today. Uh, this season is a season of fused ideas. Uh, one likes to believe, and I'll talk about this later in the Verdi, one likes to believe that um, art always starts with the spark of inspiration rather, being, rather than being made of the pieces of a lifetime of inspiration. Um, what I mean by that is uh, we didn't sit down one day and think, what can we do next season? How can we build it um, and, and have a single inspiration? Rather, uh, Carla brought to me sort of a list of what she had thought about for the season. And the board, along with Carla, asked me how I could respond to that, what I'd like to do that would retain some of the essence of that season and also have my own voice in it. Um, and drawing on um, moments of inspiration that have happened over the course of her lifetime and my lifetime, that's how this season was made. Uh, so I'll give you a brief rundown of the season. Uh, we're going to open September 8th with Viva Verdi, The Promised End. I won't talk too much about it now because that's what this episode is actually on. Um, just to say that uh, it is a staging of Verdi's towering requiem, the most popular choral work of art all time. Uh, and we stage it as a one-woman show of Shakespeare's King Lear. Um, now, I know this sounds, this sounds out of the box. It certainly is. Uh, and I'll explain how those threads come together in a little bit. Uh, but that plays, at, that plays September 8th to 23rd at the Source Theater um, and is directed by Stephen Scott Mazzola, who's done many wonderful productions for the in-series and also our frequent collaborator and uh, wonderful conductor, pianist, composer, um, Paul Levitt. Uh, and then in October, we turn to Mozart. Mozart, who's a composer that's formed the backbone of much of the in-series work. And this is a version of Mozart's Figaro that, uh, that I've written or, or compiled called Mozart's uh, Figaro in Four Quartets. And what it does is take the most popular music from Mozart's uh, Nozze di Figaro uh, and combine it with poems from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, which is the last book of poems that Eliot wrote. Uh, and these poems explore loss, nostalgia, memory, um, reflection better than any other poems in the English language, I'd say. And I've always felt intuitively that this is what Mozart's exploring in, in The Marriage of Figaro. Uh, and somehow these two disparate pieces of, of art find each other in this single uh, performance, which has just, just mesmerizing, just incredible uh, uh, projections by a Dutch artist named Husmo Start. Uh, this is a sort of 3D production technology that produces on flat surfaces but creates the impression of three-dimensionality. Um, and, and this production is unique in that those projections are, are shot upon very old school uh, theater flats. So we build sort of a Baroque theater and then we project upon it the most cutting-edge technology. It's, it's really exciting. And then in November, 
we'll open our tribute to uh, Victor Herbert, who is America's uh, great operetta composer from the beginning of the 20th century, in uh, a work called Operetta Wonderland. Uh, it'll be a great way to celebrate the holidays, and it's directed by our own Brian Shaw. Uh, who directed our uh, Jerome Kern show that was so popular last year. And that runs at DC Scottish Rite Temple. You have to check out the space if you haven't been there. And that's from November 28th to December 2nd. Um, and that is followed by a revival. Uh, we're really happy to be having from U Street to the Cotton Club back in, in rep, rep with us. This is a work that explores uh, the music scene that traveled from uh, the True Reformers Hall here in, in D.C. on U Street, all the way up to the Cotton Club in Harlem. It was written by Sybil Williams, and we're so happy to be having uh, Kinshasa Rogers back to, to be directing it. It has songs of Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, Fats Waller. Um, it's a fantastic piece of theater. Uh, again, here at The Source, January 5th through 20th. Um, and then we turn to Sarsuela, uh, the most popular zarzuela ever written is undoubtedly uh, La Verbena de la Paloma uh, by Breton. And we're very happy to be uh, producing this work at Gala Theater, March 23rd to 31st. Uh, but because it's in series, we're doing something unique with it. We're taking uh, this, uh, this force of nature piece of, of zarzuela from Spain, from the Iberian Peninsula, and uh, reconstructing it for traditional Mexican instruments and with Mexican colors, and setting it at an imagined uh, place on the border between Tijuana and San Diego. And uh, what the piece is going to explore is, um, is how the human spirit can, can and does expand all borders. It goes across all walls. Um, the piece will celebrate life, it'll celebrate um, uh, the transcending of boundaries. Um, and we say in the program, here despite separation, cultures, lives, and spirits intersect, rise, and flourish. Uh, this is going to be directed by Nick Olcott, and we're so happy to be having uh, Annie, Anna Dini Morales, who worked on our Cecilia uh, Zarzuela of last year. We're so happy to be having her return to um, write a completely new treatment of this, both in English and Spanish. Um, and finally, we end the season with Hendel. Hendel's never been produced by the in-series, and one of my specialties is Baroque music, and I believe Hendel is one of the great composers for expressing the true multi-dimensionality of, of being a human being. He gets all aspects of what it is to be alive, what it is to suffer, what it is to feel true joy and peace. Um, so this is a version of Handel's Zerse, and, and I can't wait to do a full show on this, but it turns Handel's Zerse into a completely new piece of theater. One of the characters becomes a narrator, and the whole work is thread together with the poems of Rumi, um, the most famous Sufi poet, and actually the most popular poet, um, poet uh, according to book sales, if they count for anything, that there is. Um, that is at the Lang Theater at the Atlas uh, Center for the Performing Arts, June 1st through 9th, and it will be um, our first production with our own in-house orchestra called Innovatio, a play on innovation. This is the Latin rhetorical term for innovation, but of course we like to use in a lot around these parts. So the name of this new orchestra is Innovatio, and we'll be making its debut in this production of Zerse. 
Uh, also this season, we're continuing our holiday um, family show, um, which is uh, a show we've done before, but now we're revamping it. This is Cree Cree, the Mexican singing cricket. Um, uh, touching and uh, nostalgic, beautiful show for the whole family about uh, a radio character, uh, one of Mexico's most famous uh, uh offerings to the world because it eventually became the inspiration for Jiminy Cricket. Uh, from the golden age of radio, Cree was a favorite children's show all over Mexico and America. And Creaky's irresistible songs and stories are Latino musical icons still today. Um, this is a family show. It'll be uh, December 1st and 8th uh, at the Source Theater. And of course, we do a lot of free outreach events here at the in-series too, and these have always included our director's salons for each show and that's a tradition that I'm going to continue but again we're expanding that so this year we're going to hold each of them at uh, interesting evocative inspiring locations around Washington DC and for each of these we're inviting a panel of guests from different backgrounds different expertise scholars uh, thinkers artists uh, to come and talk about the themes of that work so for instance um, I was going to talk about this later, but I'll talk about it now. For instance, next Monday, we are doing um, our director's salon for Vive Verdi. And we are pleased to have guests from the Washington Shakespeare Theater to talk about King Lear, a uh, guest from the Washington National Opera to talk about Verdi, and a guest from the NIH to talk about uh, music, art, and the brain, a, a wonderful neuroscientist. And I'll, I'll give the details on that a little later. But the idea is that these director's salons um, which I also like to think of as community forums, will bring together uh, people who you might not think are in fields that interconnect. And actually what we'll find in an open and casual discussion uh, with these fascinating minds is that uh, everything we do intersects and we reveal new ways of looking at the piece and, and new pathways into the pieces. Um, and now I'm going to talk about Viva Verdi. Um, again, we, we like to think that, uh, that everything happens with a spark of inspiration, um, that one day someone, me, woke up and thought, you know, I'd like to make a piece uh, about Verdi and Shakespeare and Lear and all the things that this piece is going to be, which I'll tell you about. Uh, what actually happened um, is that when Carla gave me her outline for a season, she wanted to open with something for Verdi. She wanted to uh, honor this composer. Um, she felt like she wanted to explore the ways in series can present Verdi in an intimacy that no one else can offer. And she gave me the, the goal, the challenge to find a way to, to create a piece surrounding Verdi. Um, so first, why the name? What's in the name? Uh, Viva Verdi. This was a slogan that was used by um, freedom fighters and actually the public at large during the Risorgimento in 19th century Italy. And the Risorgimento was a movement to unite the many disparate states which now make up Italy into one country. Italy had never been a country before. And of course Verdi was the most popular opera composer of the day, an opera unlike today. Opera was the place where people went to have um, civic discussions. Um, and it was a place that represented the community forum. 
and very conveniently, though I always think convenience has a shade of providence in it, um, Verdi's last name could be an acronym for uh, Vittorio Emanuele Re d'Italia, which means uh, Victor Emmanuel, King of Italy. And this was the uh, king who they wanted to become ruler of the entire country of Italy. And so it, saying his name was, um, was outlawed by the Habsburg Empire. But people could go to the theaters and leave into the streets yelling, Viva Verdi, Viva Verdi, and um, actually... Uh, announcing a rallying cry for, for the Risorgimento and um, freedom and liberty and democracy in, um, in Italy, at the same time praising the name of, of their beloved composer. The second half of the name of this show is The Promised End, and this comes from the uh, very final scene of Shakespeare's King Lear. Uh, and the line is, is this the promised end or image of that horror? Um, so with these two halves to the title, we express what the piece is. It is an exploration and a celebration of Verdi, the man, but also uh, the symbol. And at the same time, it is a new way of presenting and looking and thinking about uh, King Lear. Uh, it's a bold statement to say it's Shakespeare's greatest play, but I'll say it's my favorite Shakespeare play, and it's a play that's been on my mind for many years. Um, and this is a way of presenting it that it is at once King Lear and is talking about King Lear at the same time. Um, and I guess this started when I was reading uh, many years ago Verdi and or Wagner, which is a great book by Peter Conrad about um, the parallel lives of Giuseppe Verdi and Richard Wagner, uh, how they were different. Um, how they felt about each other and, and how, how they felt about themselves. And it's a wonderful way of doing a biography where uh, you don't just tell one man's story, but you tell also that man's story in the reflection of another man's story. Um, and those, of course, are reciprocal. Uh, and in this book, he talks about Verdi's lifelong adoration of Shakespeare. Um, of course, Verdi wrote when he was quite young, Macbetto, um, which is his treatment of Macbeth. And later in life, um, Verdi wanted to stop composing. He quit. He just wanted to be a farmer. Um, and and I, th I think he was in his 60s. I could be wrong about that. But he, he quit uh, composing, gave notice, as it were, and moved back to Busetto, where his farm was, and uh, set up shop there. And it, for about 10 years, wrote nothing. And then his publisher, Ricordi, uh, came and coerced him out of this retirement uh, by dangling, who else, Shakespeare in front of him. So he wrote uh, the opera Othello, uh, and then he wrote uh, what's considered his masterpiece uh, and his last opera, Falstaff, which is based on the Merry Wives of Windsor. But throughout all of that, Verdi's dream project that he always kept coming back to, he always kept talking about started, sometimes he did start it, was Ray Lear, to do an opera based on King Lear. He had... Uh, Camerano, who was one of his librettists, started a libretto, and then he most famously had uh, Soma, who was the librettist for Ballo in Mascara, start, uh, start writing a libretto, wrote two librettos based on King Lear that were never set. But most touching for me is that Verdi uh, suffered a stroke, and he, he stayed alive for another, uh, another period of time unconscious. But his last words when he was having the stroke 
were reportedly um, a reference to King Lear's last words. Um, King's last, King Lear's last words, I think, are, um, pray you, sir, undo this button. Uh, and Verity's last words were, one button more or one button less, which I think is just a, a very touching and poignant and poetic um, paraphrase of, of the man that inspired, uh, the artist who inspired a great artist who's now inspiring a whole new generation of artists and will continue to do so for time. Um, still, what, what was the significance of Lear? Um, why is Lear such an emblematic piece? Um, it's a piece that can and, and will continue to be read differently by different ages. Um, when Nahum Tate uh, wrote a new version of it, in the, and this would have been in the 17th century, Nahum Tate, of course, was the poet who wrote the words for Dido and Aeneas, which, which I think is a quite brilliant libretto, and I think posterity has agreed on that. Um, but the, the Oxford Dictionary of English Poetry likes to say that uh, Nahum Tate is perhaps the worst poet laureate in English history. Uh, still, Nahum Tate wrote a version of King Lear that was the version performed in most theaters throughout the world until the early 20th century. And in this version of Lear, um, Cordelia, the daughter of Lear, lives, and she marries Edgar, the daughter of Gloucester, and uh, all is all is mended in that way. And that's because a lot of contemporary readers and readers actually through the through the mid nineteenth century couldn't bear with the uh, the overwhelming tragedy that is the end of Lear when both Cordelia and Lear die. Um, Lear is full of iconic images that are reflective reservoirs of deep meaning, um, allowing us to see heightened meaning in our own existence. Um, these are images like, uh, well, the final image of the old man carrying the body of, of, his, of his daughter who's been hung, uh, the image of a, of a mad king and a blind uh, man meeting on, on the heath, um, the image of an old uh, crazed king screaming into the, the mouth of a storm. Um, these have become uh, striking images uh, that give us a, a way to think about aging and what it means to learn the value of love. Um, and, and this sort of universal experience that we will all go through um, of, of aging. Uh, and in that way, Lear can be read as Verdi. And we can think of Verdi in those last years looking out over the precipice of his own mortality into that vo void, or as Shakespeare would say, over the extreme verge, um, and being a lot like Lear. Um, Verdi wasn't a religious man, um, but he was deeply pious, as the Requiem bears witness to. And as does what is perhaps his greatest contribution to posterity, the Casa di Riposo, um, which, uh, which was a retirement home built in Milan by Verdi. Uh, and I'll just read you a quote from Verdi about uh, what he says in reference to this. He says, of all my works, that which pleases me most is the Casa that I had built in Milan to shelter elderly singers who have not been favored by fortune or who, when they were young, did not have the virtue of saving their money. Poor and dear companions of my life. And I think that's such a beautiful sentiment. Um, generations of singers 
bear the beautiful weight of homage to Verdi, and not just those who have lived at the Casa, um, but those who have made Verdi as the quintessential opera composer the essence of their lives. So many people have made this man's work uh, the work of and the toil of their lives. Um, and I find it profoundly beautiful uh, that he sought to honor what he knew would be generations of singers to come singing his music in, in this, this way. The Casa still operates today, and there was just an article in the New York Times about how they've started allowing young musicians to live there as well, uh, and to, to study and to play concerts for and with the um, older residents in the, in the house. Uh, it's just a, just a fantastic uh, thing that's going on in the world and gives, gives one, me, uh, hope. Um, the Requiem was written for an Italian, it was written, Verdi wanted to commemorate the life of an Italian writer, Mazzoni, um, who had died and who was, next to Verdi, uh, the leading uh, inspiration, artistic figure behind the Risorgimento. He wrote a novel called I Promessi Sposi, um, which dealt with issues that became, became um, match points in the Risorgimento, but more than that, he defined an, a sort of vernacular Italian language in the same way that Dante had in, in uh, making Tuscan sort of the, the recognized language through the, the, the Divine Comedy. Um, and Mazzoni was, was Verdi's idol, and there's even a story of how his, his wife... Um, Giuseppina uh, uh, plotted and found a way to get the two men to finally meet because Verdi would have been too nervous to have been part of this or to write him. And so Giuseppini sort of put it together and, and of course it, it was the highlight of Verdi's life to actually meet this man. And when he died, he went to the city of Milan and um, offered to, to write this great work. But the story doesn't stop or rather begin there. The final movement of the Requiem is called the Libre Me. And this was written many, many years before uh, when there was a project in Italy amongst uh, many of Italy's great composers to write a mass in honor of the death of Rossini. And uh, this mass was actually mostly completed, but it was never performed. Uh, and one of the movements, the movement that Verdi would have contributed, was the, uh, the Libera Me. And what's so special about, about that, I, I want to just talk about the Libera Me, is that it isn't, if you, if you look at the liturgical text of the Requiem Mass, it doesn't end with the Libera Me. The Libera Me is part of uh, what is said later outside the church at the graveside. Um, and the Requiem is special because uh, it has this incredible drama in a movement called the Dies Irae, which is the largest movement. It's the second movement. It happens maybe six minutes into the piece, and it takes up about a third of the entire piece, if not, if not even more, actually. Um, it's dramatic. It's the sound of the horses of the apocalypse, the trumpets of the end times. It depicts revelation, revelations and the fires of inferno. And um, uh, 
it is what has led many scholars to call this non-opera uh, an opera because it is such dramatic music. This happens all at the beginning of the work, and then the piece submerges itself into a much more uh, introspective type of writing um, where it explores uh, mortality with quiet subtlety um, in movements like the Onus Dei and the Luxiterna. And uh, the Onus Dei uh, is, is a, a beautiful setting of the actual um, chant tune um, though orchestrated in a, to sound like like um, early romantic music, almost like Mendelssohn. Uh, and the Luxeterna um, goes through goes through many places um, that are one wouldn't know that they're revolutionary. Um, but if you explore what he's actually doing musically, they're 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 quite innovative, um, but all very subtly, all very quietly. And then the piece, uh, comes to the Libra May, which is not from the Mass, as I said. And it's almost, I like to think, like a question mark. At the end of the piece, it doesn't end with, with violence or drama, but it also doesn't end with um, peace and the sublime. It ends with a question mark. And we can imagine Shakespeare's Lear, just like we can imagine Giuseppe Verdi, pondering the meaning of it all. Um, and pondering that next step across the extreme verge. Um, this is this is sort of the, the reason that I wanted to combine the two pieces. Um, I know of Verdi's long connection to Lear. Um, I know that Verdi represents uh, the power of art and the path we'll all go through and how art can help us process that path into uh, loss of sense and eventually loss of life. Um, and uh, the process then is very unique and, and I hope this doesn't get too, too sort of navel gazing, but I want to talk about um, what it is to, to direct a piece. When you direct a spoken piece of theater, um, part of what the actor does and what the director helps the actor do is to determine the subtext behind a text. Um, a single line of text can be read any way. It can be read sincerely, uh, ironically, um, empty of expression. It can mean the opposite, or it can mean a, have a coded message in it. Um, and a, an actor gets to de determine that, and that's called the subtext. In opera, the process is different, and what a director a good director does is spend their time investigating what the composer has decided the subtext is. Because when a composer sets a text, what the music is for that text is the subtext. And there are a range of possible answers, but, um, but there are definitely some answers which are clearly not the, the intention of the composer. And if you listen closely enough, you can hear the composer deciding on the subtext. With this project, we took... Uh, Verdi's Requiem, which of course already exists as a piece of music, and then tried to write a text to go on top of it. So we had subtext first, and then tried to create text. And this is something completely unique uh, to to the in series. I can't I can't think of a work quite like it. 
Um, I'm extremely proud of our, our brave uh, director, uh, Stephen Scott Mazzola, and our brave conductor, pianist, um, Paul Levitt, and the whole, the whole team. We have eight uh, artists um, from diverse backgrounds, but all well-equipped to enter the music of Verdi and to present it in this chamber version. It's very unique that we get to present the piece for eight singers and a piano, and in that way... Um, we get to explore an intimacy that, that never gets explored in the piece and certainly Verdi heard in his, in his mind's ear, as it were. Um, and I'm extremely proud of all these people for being part of a journey to, to do something that's never done but been done before. One of the most unique aspects, of course, is that uh, in addition to these eight singers, we have uh, an actress who is playing um, Verdi slash Lear, as I've come to have the shorthand for her character's title. Um, she is at once Verdi, and she is at once Lear. And this is um, Helen Hayes uh, award winner, uh, Nana Ingverson, uh, who is a tour de force on the stage. Um, this is a grueling um, almost 90 minutes of performing what is in many ways, a one-woman version of King Lear. Um, it taxes the body, it taxes the mind and the spirit, um, and it is something something to behold. Um, one of the challenges for me when writing the text of the piece was to decide, well, what what is the voice of Verdi? I know he loved King Lear, and I love King Lear, um, and as I talk about Lear, um, can I possibly inhabit um, Verdi's voice? Well, as it turns out, I didn't have to. In, in studying for the piece, uh, I read the work of Marjorie Garber. Now, Marjorie Garber is a scholar. Uh, she's a professor of early modern theater at uh, Harvard University. Um, but, but early modern theater is a paltry, paltry term for what she does. She has written on a diverse range of topics, many very contemporary um, but all having conversation with her uh, home turf, which is which is Shakespeare and, and uh, the the early modern English stage, um, and she wrote a wonderful book um, in which there is a chapter for each Shakespeare play. It is the best um, entrance point, exit point, middle point, the best anything I think out there for um, grasping Shakespeare. And I turned to her essay on King Lear, and in reading it, I, I had the revelation that there's no way I could possibly talk about Lear more elegantly, um, more adeptly, more incisively than she has. Um, so I wrote her, and, and with the permission, permission of Dr. Garber, uh, the voice of Lear, of Lear in this piece is often the uh, words of Marjorie Garber. Um, she forms a lot of the, the exact language and, and sometimes the paraphrased language of, of the role. And there's also an array of quotes cobbled together from critics from four generations, uh, four centuries even, talking about um, this play. And uh, also other poets, John Donne, um, there's quotes from the Bible. It is a truly postmodern piece of work, this script. Um, and I want to address why, why choose a woman to play this role. Um, 
There's a lot in that question. Of course, in the early modern English stage, uh, there's the tradition that the roles of women were played by men. Um, and I wanted to explore what it would say to, to suspend disbelief in the other direction. Uh, but there's much more than that. I wanted to, in the words of Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, to unsex King Lear, the play and the man, um, in that the, what Lear goes through, the same thing Verity goes through, is the same thing all of us will go through. It is confronting our own mortality. It's looking back over our lands, putting our lands in order, as, as T.S. Eliot would say, and um, looking forward uh, to the brink and over the edge. And that is not a male experience. Um, I was very uh, lucky to see Glenda Jackson at the Old Vic in London uh, last year play King Lear. Um, and you realize something that afterwards seems so obvious, which is that Lear, un unlike some other Shakespeare roles, Lear is a completely ungendered role. Um, and uh, I felt it would be profoundly moving and an emblem to the audience saying this piece isn't about um, a unique experience, it's about a universal experience. This isn't about Lear, and it's not about Shakespeare, it's about all of us. Um, and Nana's been brave enough to take on this challenge. Um, she's a true yeoman and yo-woman in all aspects of the words. Um, now, the show plays. Um, it opens September 8th at the Source Theater. That's at 14th Street and uh, T. 1835 14th Street here in uh, here in Washington DC it plays September 8th through the 23rd um, you can uh, find more information online www.inseries.org or by calling our um, our box office which is 202 204 there will be more coming up on the podcast about this piece um, We'll be presenting our entire director's salon. We're recording that so that we can put it up there. And I hope to do some interviews with some of the artists. Um, but for now, I hope that gives you, gives you a good taste of how we're opening the season, um, a piece that exemplifies revolution and evolution and many meanings of both words. Um, I should say that uh, the Source Theater, uh, which is also where we reside in his residence, which is at 1835 14th Street, um, the nearest metro stop is the U Street African American Civil War Memorial uh, Cordoza stop, which is the green and yellow line. Um, uh, now, at the end of each of these shows, I'm going to do a This Week at the End series and let you know what we're doing. Um, first of all, we're in rehearsals, you might guess, for Viva Verity. Um, so, so it's a busy time for the artists um, and for the technical crew and the creative team. Um, coming up, coming up in the last stages of putting this this new work together, and we're preparing for our director salon. And I promised I would tell you uh, a bit more of that. Um, so for this first director salon, we're lucky enough to have uh, partnerships with the Washington National Opera, the Washington Shakespeare Theater, and the National Institutes of Health. Um, from the Washington National Opera, we have Robert Ainsley, who is the head of their Young Artist Program. Um, uh, a wonderful pianist and organist and coach and conductor and 
uh, a real gem to, to Washington, D.C. We're lucky to have him um, in the city, and we're lucky to have him for this salon, and he's going to share thoughts on opera and Verdi. Um, and who knows, he might even get wound into a discussion on neuroscience because uh, we're also very lucky to have as our guest um, Dr. David Jangroff from the uh, NIH um, who's been working on this project uh, that involves music and music's effect on the brain and there'll be a, a whole event at the Kennedy Center um, with Renee Fleming uh, on September 7th. Um, we're, we're very fortunate that he took time out to, to come talk to us about how the mind works and how aging works on the mind and what art does to the mind. Um, and then also as part of that discussion, we're going to have Drew Lichtenberg, who is uh, from the Washington Shakespeare Theater dramaturg there, who's going to be telling us about, about uh, Shakespeare and Lear and why this play matters and what it has to do with opera and neuroscience. And I'll be hosting that event. There'll be music performed by our, our cast and artists, um, and there'll be refreshments to follow and an open rehearsal even. Uh, that's at Casa Italiana, which is 595 one half Third Street Northwest. I, as someone not from D.C., I'm not familiar what a half of a street is yet, but hopefully you'll know what that means. Again, that's 595 one half Third Street Northwest. Um, it's free, totally open to the public, uh, but we would appreciate it if you RSVP'd by calling our office. And again, that number is 202-204-7763. Um, also this week we'll be preparing our e-blast, The Insider. You can go on our website, www.inseries.org, to sign up for the e-blast if you're not part of it. Um, and we're hiring a new position here at The In-Series, a new marketing and outreach coordinator who's going to be uh, helping us build our impact in the community and help us have conversations which can not only um, build our capacity to present great art, but also our capacity to be part of the conversation going on in Washington, D.C., um, me personally, I'm excited. Uh, on Friday, I'll be meeting with Dana Tysoon Burgess, who's a wonderful modern choreographer. Um, I saw his dance troupe before at the Kennedy Center earlier this year, and I, I look forward to meeting him in person. And hopefully, we'll be selling lots and lots and lots of tickets. Um, so remember to, to you, it's still not too late, I should say, to get a season pass for the entire season, right? Pick three pass. You save a bunch of money by doing that. Um, again, you can call our office or go online to do that. Um, and I'd like to thank you for listening uh, to this podcast. Um, you can check out our blog at www.inseries.wordpress.com. And you can find us on Facebook at uh, uh, backslash the inseries and on Instagram at InSeriesOpera or my personal Instagram account, which is in underscore series underscore AD, um, which stands for artistic director. I've been told it looks like ad. <laughs> um, and we're working on a twiddle, Twitter handle. There will be a Twitter handle. Um, it's just got to go on the list of things for next week. Um, until next time, be radical and be graceful. Uh, Rabindranath Tagore, who's my favorite poet, says that civility is the greatest and the first work of art. So I'll add to that send-off, make your art through civility. Bye-bye.